Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mental Disorder Podcast. I'm Jonah Davids, and my guest today is Mel, who writes the Substack Headlines. Every week, Mel puts out a newsletter chronicling what's going on in the mental health world, particularly the mental health startup world. I've invited her on to talk about the latest trends in mental health and where she sees uh, it all going. So, Mel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, first, tell me a little bit about how you started writing about mental health. Was this always an interest of yours? And what recently drew you to start headlines? So, I think mental health and like my own inner world, I've always had a passion for like, excavating and like exploring and digging in. And so it's always been like a kind of personal interest on the side while I was doing work. Around 2020, like pandemic time, I actually left my job and wanted to like write. (laughs) That was kind of my goal. I was like, I'm going to be a writer, but I didn't really know what that meant. So I kind of flailed around for a few years before, um, I came across Fit Insider, which is a newsletter that covers like the whole spectrum of fitness and wellness. So I started writing for them, really enjoyed it. They do a lot of really great work on evidence backed around, you know, health and well-being. And, you know, mental health is like a part of that. And so I started doing research on that and found that like I really enjoyed being able to kind of marry both my personal interests and my professional interests in writing. In terms of headlines, it kind of came together very well, like very timely, because uh, after the pandemic, as we know, the mental health crisis got a lot worse. Um, At the same time, uh, interest around psychedelics grew a lot. And this is kind of like a convergence of, you know, all the interests that I am really curious about and really passionate about. Right. And I saw in, I think, uh, one of your bios um, online that you used to be a management consultant. So I'm wondering... Do your skills as a management consultant inform the work you're doing now? I would definitely say that it informs my perspective. And I think I would kind of name what I do now as like creative. Like I can be a creative expression management consultant because <laughs> I'm doing a lot of the same work. It's just, you know, I'm not working with clients or, you know, on calls all day. Like I'm, I'm just taking the information that I would be doing you know, consulting with different companies and like writing that down and putting it into a sort of format that I enjoy and have a lot of fun doing. You read headlines, but if listeners read headlines, like I use a lot of puns. <laughs> it's something like I really enjoy being able to do. Um, yeah, so I would, I'll definitely say it, it informs it. Yeah. A, a lot of puns, a lot of very choice emojis are used as well. <laughs> well, as as somebody with that background and now who's writing and thinking about that, I mean, if you think about the mental health startup world, so we're talking, I mean, there's so many trends going on that we'll talk about, but you've got AI therapy, you've got psychedelics uh, being used for mental health treatment. There's sort of big data mental health stuff happening. So you've got like Apple releasing their health app, which is now going to include mental health and, and things like that. Virtual reality. I mean, there's there's just so much stuff happening right now. And so my question is, if you look at the sort of field overall, and maybe this is different for subsections within each field, but what are the kind of incentives for people who are doing this research or making these products right now? Like if you're a, if you're a young person or maybe an older person, but you're like, I want to have the next big mental health thing, whether it's an app or it's a product or something. I mean, what, what is kind of motivating you? What kind of people are you going to have to work with? Who are you going to have to convince? 
because I imagine it's very, very different than a person who's like in a university and wants to develop a new drug or therapy or something like that. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because that's where it gets a little ethically like kind of hmm, like what's going on here? Because there is kind of weird incentives at times. And we see this in psychedelics where it's like, okay, a lot of people are trying to copy and paste the venture models of, you know, what works in Silicon Valley of like move fast and break things and scale and, you know, get as many users slash patients as possible. But then when you start to look at it in terms of mental health and healing, it like doesn't really fully map on because the incentive starts to be like, oh, the more people that we treat, the more money we make. And we kind of saw this happen with like cerebral, where it was like, then they start peddling pills and Adderall to like, on Instagram ads, you see this with like ketamine clinics too, targeting people on Instagram, TikTok, etc. It's a little confusing, because at the same time, it's like, yes, you need money to run a company. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like, are we really serving and helping people the best we can if we're trying to market to people that they're depressed or anxious in order to, you know, get more people into your funnel and like retain users? That's the other thing too. It's like, they're just very different. Yeah. Just kind of like driving forces here that don't quite make sense if you like really think about it. <laughs> Is there a kind of a difference in terms of where people are getting their money from in terms of are some people getting it from people who are more philanthropically minded in that space and others it's more you know just want to make profit i would say i don't know the answer to that like very clearly but i would imagine that you know there is kind of a spectrum of people who are kind of getting into it because they see the opportunity and there's a little more maybe a, like a capitalist kind of drive to that versus people who are looking kind of for like angel investors um, and people who are very mission driven and like value aligned and not trying to get like a 10 times return um, or something. Yeah, it is something that I do see around the space where there's kind of a group of people who are like really, really just mission driven and really believe in um, the power of healing often because they've gone through dark nights of the soul themselves and really suffered and really struggled and genuinely, you know, want to help bring about transformation and show people that there is like a path out. You know, you're not stuck down in the deep, dark pits of the well. There are other people who've gone through this too. Um, and yeah, I mean, those types of founders, entrepreneurs, and like people building in this space, I think, are the people who won't be growing necessarily as fast, but I think will probably last <laughs> the longest and have the most profound impact, not necessarily the widest impact, but the deepest impact. Right. And, and to your to your point earlier, I guess it often you often end up with a combo, right? So you end up with there's one person who's or one group or thing that's very mission driven. Uh, but then they need the kind of, you know, muscle other group to actually get them going. And then it becomes a conflict between the mission, you know, what are we doing the real thing? Or are we just sellouts? One aspect of a lot of these new kind of mental health innovations, we might say it's sort of especially in the digital space, but I think also things like psychedelics. To me, it seems like there's a strong egalitarian impulse. Like there's this strong impulse to and I think I think it actually ends up being perceived often the opposite. But I think a lot of the people, they, they think like, if everybody could have a therapist on their phone, then, 
we don't need to worry about the shortage of therapists or the cost of therapy or problems with insurance or things like that, right? If we can get the if we can get your phone therapist to be as good as a real therapist or even half as good, that's still super impactful. And I think that actually that aspect of it is actually quite um, missed and and maybe not always doesn't always come through when you read like write ups of some of these startups and things like that. Yeah, could you elaborate on what you mean by that? Because I, I think I kind of know what you're saying, but right, yeah. Um, well, what I what I mean, I guess, is that a lot of these. Uh, kind of new mental health startups, whether it's, you know, AI therapists, um, or big data mental health stuff, uh, or even psychedelics, I I see them as basically saying, we're going to try and shrink the cost of mental health treatment and make it accessible for anybody who like owns a smartphone or, you know, who can afford to, uh, I don't know, order, you know, a psychedelic online, and it comes to their door, something like that. And that is very, very different than the current system, which is much more credentialed and hierarchical. And in under the current system, right, if you want therapy, um, you have to either pay out of pocket, right, or you go and if you've got insurance, there's very often long wait times. But you've had startups, right, like, um, what's it called? Better Health, I think. That's the online therapy one, right? An example like that is, yeah, people are still paying for it, but you can now get therapy anywhere you want, you know, for, I, I don't know, I assume it's a somewhat reasonable price. And so I, I see part of the motivation for some of these startups as, as being quite egalitarian in the sense of people are trying to say, wherever you are, whoever you are, you know, whatever your budget, you should be able to get this kind of treatment. And we're going to make it so that in the same way, you know, that everybody now has a computer on their phone, right, which would have been unimaginable 100 years ago. Why not give everybody mental health treatment on their phone? Like, how is that not uh, you know, a, a better system. Yeah. I think it's interesting because, okay, if we imagine an ideal world, if we get there immediately, it's like, oh, okay, all of a sudden, everyone has a very patient and caring LLM on their phone who is responsive 24-7, um, will listen to your problems for hours on end. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that actually fix all of our problems. Like, maybe it will address you know kind of the middle ground um for people who are like okay this would actually be really really helpful for me it would address like this portion of uh emergencies that i have but i think in terms of addressing like deeper rooted issues like loneliness and isolation and the fact like this is a whole different topic but just the fact that we're so disconnected from each other now um and yeah, I think that's like a much deeper issue where even if everyone had that, it's like that still is addressing this core need that we have of having a tight knit community and friends that we love and can turn to, which is honestly the bedrock of mental well-being and is in many ways the real like real world manifestation of a patient carrying LLM. And so I, I think both things are important. I think focusing on that aspect of like, okay, can we improve mental health access for all? Like LLMs are probably actually really helpful. Like I use Pi a lot. Like for example, when I can't go to sleep, it's like 2 or 3 a.m. I have something like nodding in my head and I'm ruminating. Like I can't reach my therapist. Then a lot of my friends are asleep, but it's like a really helpful thing to help me be like, okay, here's another sounding board I have. But at the same time, you also need that other aspect. It's like, 
we kind of need all of these different things. Maybe need is a strong word, but all of them are really, really helpful. And none of them by themselves will be like the solution. I think there's a bit of an interesting contrast or, or trade-off there where I think increasingly we're investing more in sort of the online and, and maybe artificial kind of relationships. And mm-hmm. uh, I think with AI and things like that, that will we're not quite there yet, but pretty soon I think that will be like a very big thing. Like I, I suspect that pretty soon a lot of people will be having AI friends and things like that. And I mean, for us, it seems weird. It's already imagine, happening. <laughs> yeah, it's already happening. Yeah. Uh, and imagine growing up with that, right? Like imagine you grow up with your AI teddy bear who talks to you. How is it so different now when they're in the computer or something like that? Um, so as more of the world kind of turn goes online, then the real world, I think, also becomes a bit scarcer so uh, or a bit less... Uh, connected and so you're you're right i mean you got to approach it uh from both from both angles what i find sort of interesting too to some of the pushback to ai therapy and things like that is some of it does come from that where people will say well the whole point of therapy is that you have a relationship with like a real person and that over time you develop uh you know that bond that um that connection and that is actually what therapy is all about and i'm i'm like to some degree, I'm still very open to the idea that people could have that relationship with an AI or a robot. <laughs> and I actually think an AI, I mean, an AI, an AI, if you think about it, that listens to what you're saying and then feeds it back to you could, you know, make, could make many people quite happy and make them feel very heard and validated, uh, which it seems to be what many people want from therapy, as opposed to something that's more like constructive and critical. So, I mean, maybe that's, not necessarily the best thing for people, but maybe that's what most people will want. And I kind of see things moving more in that direction over time. It's kind of the whole thing of like, maybe we can't fight technology, right? There's this whole thing of, you know, especially for the youth mental health crisis, like let's get kids outside more, let's get them playing more, you know? Um, but at the same time, it's like, there's also the reality that gonna they're going to be interacting with technology in a completely different way than like even we can fathom. Um, And maybe it's important to focus on doing that in a healthy way versus being like, no, like just don't. (laughs) So yeah, I think there is a lot of value in being like, these tools are probably going to be a huge part of our lives. And maybe we should pay a lot of attention and resources to actually making sure, well, this is like, this gets into the whole AI conversation, but interacting with them responsibly and building ones that are that can care responsibly. Yeah, as I said, that's a whole nother conversation. It also makes me think, I mean, maybe in many ways, the kind of mental health approaches or products we have now are, are sort of poorly adapted to the internet. And, and maybe there's actually a lot of room for improvement there just in terms of helping people like manage their digital lives in a better way. I mean, I... I'm, I don't do uh, IFS, uh, which is um, for listeners uh, internal family systems therapy, which is it's a new therapy that's come out. I, I think what in the last 10, 20 years, something like that, and it's it's taken off uh, in a lot of kind of um, sort of these new mental health kind of circles. I have certain doubts about it, but but one aspect of it is this idea that like you as a person have all these parts inside of you. And you need to kind of go into dialogue with many of those parts. And 
Uh, one thing that I think a lot of people experience in the digital age, if they're, you know, too online, is they have all these different identities from different places that are doing different things that maybe they espouse one set of beliefs, you know, I mean, I have many friends who in public don't talk about their political beliefs at all. And then online, they're the edgiest, you know, person. And I mean, I imagine that causes some kind of internal contradiction for many people. I mean, maybe the whole online world has not even really been tapped in terms of um, the kinds of, I hate to use the word, but like traumas or problems that that people might be experiencing. I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's now just kind of starting to come out. We're starting to kind of deal with it and people are realizing that it is a problem. But I'm not sure we have actually, you know, more precise solutions other than saying we should do less of it. Yeah, I think what what you say is interesting about the relationship between IFS and kind of online personas. I'm personally very passionate about IFS. I've been doing it for like two or three years with my therapist. Um, and I think it's a really, really useful framework for kind of understanding different kind of patterns that come up. Um, and I would actually say that online personas are a little bit different than IFS. Like there's similarities, but I would see that as more like code switching in a way versus like being within different parts. Um, but I, I still think that's a really interesting note that you make because, yeah, how do you even, this is something that wasn't present when psychology was developed. I mean, there's code switching in like, you know, mild ways, <laughs> but to the level of where it's like, here's my Instagram persona, here's my Twitter persona, here's who I am on TikTok. Like, how does that affect us developmentally when you're an adolescent growing up like online where, I don't know, I think I saw a stat like kids are spending nine, 80, 90% of their days like looking at a screen these days. Like that's a very significant chunk of your time. That's like who you are now. And yeah, I think exploring kind of themes or just phenomenon like that and how it affects our mental well-being or just like affects our brain and changes our neurochemistry is super, super interesting and probably an important area. I, I don't know. I, I, sometimes I find it horrifying and fascinating. I mean, because there's 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 many cases, right, where what I mean, so ev everything that's online has, for the most part, I, I guess, some correspondence in the real world. So people have some idea in the real world, they put it online. But there's many things now that started online that are coming into the real world, right? And I think I think a really interesting kind of phenomenon of that is like furries, right? So so people who are furries, uh, they create a fursona online where they design like basically who their sort of real animal self is as they see it. And then they then turn that into like a real suit that they will wear, you know, in real life. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily know if psychology can explain that or understand that. Um, but some aspect of it, right, is that I think it's very, people can really have, I mean, online, there's no physical constraints, right? So you can be whoever you want, say whatever you want, do whatever you want. And, and maybe for some people, that's enough. But I think for other people, then they, they want to bring it into the real world. And yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe that that maybe is a maybe there needs to be a startup for something like that of of trying to uh help people figure some of those things out but um i'm i'm a bit so i'm a bit curious about ifs because i know a lot of people who they've done it and they've they've said like oh this is like groundbreaking you know it's changed my life or something like that and 
yeah, I see a lot, a lot of people like, like, for, well, they will come out of an IFS session and they'll be like, that was like insane. And I'm, I'm just a very skeptical person by nature. I actually, I actually looked at the IFS book. Like I found the book and I looked at the research section, very unimpressive in terms of what they've been able to show. Like, but you know, I'm, I'm willing to be sort of convinced. So what, what do you think is the secret sauce of IFS that is, is getting so many people? Cause truly a lot of people really, really like it to, to speak so highly of it. The secret sauce, I think, is just experiencing it. I was very skeptical, too. I read the book and I was like, huh, okay. (laughs) Um, And then I actually started doing it with my therapist. And I've done like talk therapy before and then doing somatic therapy, and which I kind of distinguish uh, and I think are pretty separate and is, is important to distinguish. And the level of depth and kind of insight that I was able to achieve using that framework and seeing that, seeing it kind of, um, I guess there, there's two experiences, right? The first experience is the felt sense of coming out of therapy or do, doing the actual therapy and feeling the emotions that come up and the spaciousness that arises from kind of untangling emotional knots and stuff like that. And then there's the second experience of being like, oh, wow, I can actually see these patterns in my life and use this framework to understand myself and genuinely have more compassion for myself as I'm working through this, through these like different neurosis and whatever. Um, And yeah, at the end of the day, it's like, what is therapy if not that? Um, And in terms of research, I will say that like, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, it's a little hard to especially around emotional work and inner work to um, yeah, run clinical trials on things that are so subjective and experiential and happening kind of inside. Um, but yeah, it's definitely an area that I think could use a lot of creativity <laughs> in terms of being able to um, yeah, understand like what works for people, what doesn't work for people. For some people, IFS just like is a dead end because, you know, it takes a lot of mental explorations. And for some people, that just doesn't come naturally. It does sound, as you describe it, like one of those things where it's a it's an experience, right? And you 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 have to try it yourself. So it's like psychedelics in that way. Right. And I think I mean to maybe maybe to before getting to psychedelics to kind of pivot in that center there. I mean, I I think there's a, a big faction of people and there's always been these people in psychology, but I think increasingly in this mental health startup space who are, are very much mixing spirituality and psychology together. Part of that to me seems like, you know, we talked a bit about sort of social atomization and people not, you know, having the same communities, the same religious structure, things like that. Part, part of it to me seems like a response to that where people are feeling um, in order for me to be mentally healthy or mentally well, uh, I need to have a connection to something bigger than myself, which could be a community, but could also be an idea, uh, you know, some spiritual practice or some idea of God or something like that. But then I also see it sort of related a bit to um, people taking a, I don't want to say an anti-scientific approach, but a more scientifically neutral approach where they're sort of saying, we're trying to improve mental health, but to get there, you're going to sort of have to trust us because 
um, it's not that what we're doing is not scientific, but it's much more subjective. It's, it's in this kind of, you know, we're not, we're not trying to do, we might do a clinical trial, but that's not what it's really about. What it's really about is people can have good or bad experiences. And we're trying to get people to have these really good life-changing experiences. And that will like change their life. There's definitely this really interesting intersection between like psychology and spirituality that I think is converging uh, particularly like now because you've had this twin, these twin trends of like the death of God and the decline of religion. Like if you look at graphs, there's just like a massive drop off in people going to church and whatnot. And then you also have the whole loneliness, social atomization thing, as you were saying. Um, and then you also have this thing where it's like psychology is a really, really young uh, field. Like the brain is a black box <laughs> to basically all of us. We still have not cracked this like problem of consciousness, like not even a little bit. We're like chipping away at it. And so I think that's why a lot of people are turning to spirituality and religion because these are like centuries old practices, basically, of studying the mind. And it's kind of the best resource we have. <laughs> and I think personally, it's really cool because you're kind of now weaving these two fields together that typically are very, you know, like oil and water um like science versus faith <laughs> and yeah it's really interesting to see you know so what's 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 interesting or, or what can be frustrating to me about it is i like i like them separate like i'm like faith faith can be good science is really good uh both are important i think both for you know an individual to have a good life you need reason and you need some kind of you know belief something but um I I don't like when they get crossed. So so sometimes I I see people who are in the really spiritual kind of camp doing really bad science, and uh, or they're trying to push something through, and they're pushing it through so fast that they're ignoring right side effects or things like that. And uh, you know, like we saw uh, recently, there was that study that you wrote about about I think it was either psychedelic or ketamine trials where people were not reporting the side effects. Um. Right. So, so, so things like that, you know, so sometimes I think people are, I mean, I mean, maybe that science is full, but, uh, but, um, but I, sometimes I feel like it's better when they're separate. And when we suddenly we cross them over, like, I don't know if we're necessarily getting the best of both worlds, but that being said, I mean, when you actually look at psychology as a science, I think it's quite questionable whether it has been particularly scientific. I think there have been, you know, moments of people trying to be very seriously scientific, like I think behaviorism and that sort of, you know, turned into cognitive behaviorism, but uh, quite a lot of it has basically been using science as a story to, you know, to basically peddle new trends. Uh, and you can, you can see that in all kinds of things, right? So much self-help stuff is, you know, quote unquote, evidence-based, psychology-based. Freud, who I have a bit of a soft spot for, but, you know, he thought himself a scientific man. I don't, you know, he was he was really a good storyteller and a very good sort of social commentator, good writer. I mean, may, maybe maybe science is actually the lesser tool. Maybe when people are 
and I'm not talking about people who have a very severe mental illness or something like that, but maybe most people who feel anxious or depressed, really maybe their problem is the, I don't know, the lack of connection to other people around them or just, you know, lack of purpose. And maybe that's actually just what we should be more focused on. So this is interesting because I recently watched um, Contact. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, It's an older movie about basically like, aliens contacting the world it's matthew mcconaughey and like jodie foster i think basically there's this idea in it where it's kind of the the tension between faith and science um and what i thought was really interesting at the end was the idea that both are in pursuit of the same thing like both are in pursuit of truth they're just going about it in different ways and i think that's where interweaving of it because they they're they're such different perspectives right um and it's especially interesting in the mental health field because i think you have people who are like clinicians and working in you know the lab and testing you know and stuff and then you have people like shamans and like psychedelic facilitators um well actually i don't know if i would put psychedelic facilitators on this side but you know in some ways you could argue that like the therapists and psychologists of today are kind of like the priests of like before they're doing much of the same work. So there's a really interesting kind of intersection that is really unique to mental health, I think. And I think it is because us as humans, mental illnesses and disorders and how like this complex, very like crazy system inside of us requires both fields to understand it fully. Um, so I would actually argue that this is an area where science and spirituality must be married. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what you're what you're saying about, you know, the facilitators of so, you know, people who are taking psychedelics now in like a supervised setting, right? So they might have a therapist or a psychiatrist or somebody who's been trained or licensed in this to guide them through this. And my friend Andrew always likes to say, you can pay, you know, thousand plus bucks for that. Or you could go to Mexico and for $40, a woman he knows who's a dentist will guide you on you know the trip of your life. Um, and I, I kind of think part of it is, is that maybe in, in many ways, we kind of have a religion of science or like scientism in, in some respects. And uh, this is not to say science is, is false or does not exist. I just think a lot of what we in psychology call science is really a bit more of this kind of smoke and mirror thing, which doesn't mean it's not important, right? Because it's part of our religion. It's part of like our ritual and what we do. And you do need the people who are, have the secret knowledge to tell you that like, you know, you're better and, and that doing this is the right thing to do. Like, I think that's a very human instinct, but I guess it, it, it can become an issue once it becomes a bit more, uh, because, because a normal part of these, you know, rituals or religions in the past, they're pretty localized, right? And so they already kind of exist within a community. I think part of the potential problem of trying to roll this out to many, many, many people uh, in many, many places is you are going to, um, you're basically going to increase the chances that people are going to have bad experiences or they are going to end up doing something they might not fully understand or they might regret. Um, I think part of that is just like life. Like if you want to take the chance of trying a psychedelic drug, I think, uh, you know, you should probably be able to, but at the same time, we, we, 
are now in a situation where the quote unquote, you know, wisdom that would have been surrounding that and the guidance that would have surrounded that is maybe not there. And one thing that does worry me is when I see, you know, for example, people trying to say, well, we should do, we should use psychedelics to treat people who are depressed or something like that. My worry is generally they tell you don't do psychedelics uh, when you're having a bad day. Right. And like, that's kind of one of the big rules is if you're having a bad time, like your mind is not in a good place, you probably shouldn't do this because it's going to increase the chance you have a bad trip. And so I just, I kind of wonder whether uh, it's, I don't know, I, I wonder whether we're trying to export it beyond what it was initially kind of intended for in terms of the, the set and setting that people were experiencing it in. Those are all really good points. And I think the psychedelic industry as a whole, there's like, there's so many, there's so many questions. <laughs> and I think why it's so complex is because every, for every single individual and also for different days and different times in their life, the answer could be different. And it's such a personal and intimate kind of experience that taking it into this thing where we're scaling it and trying to mass produce pills is kind of very antithetical to the property of these like plant medicines, especially like if you look at their indigenous roots and whatnot. Um, and I think, you know, that's the reason why you see so many different, like such a wide range of experiences. I like read about this last week. There's really, really dark experiences where people, um, in extremely severe cases, get uh, psychosis. You know, it triggers psychosis. Um, or in like milder cases, are just extremely destabilized for weeks or months or years. Then you have on the complete other spectrum people who are like, and this is what you see in the hype of psychedelics, like my depression is cured after a single trip. Um, and it's such a like wide spectrum. And I think that's the reason because it's so personal and intimate to each person. And the way that it is administered, like set and setting the therapist that you're working with, or just like the environment that you're in, your mental environment is so unique and so important that I just really don't know if doing a cookie cutter way and going the like mass production way is very safe. And yeah, it's kind of this conundrum of like, well, this could be really empowering and helpful and amazing for so many people. It could also be really, really dark. So, and then like, how do you choose even between the two? Do you say no because there are risks? Do you say um, no because, and also like cut off a lot of people from potential healing? Another thing we're thinking about is, because people often think about their product or, you know, some big change as like, they imagine that as it is for them and the community they're a part of, it's going to be the same for everybody else. But oftentimes, like things don't have that impact. And so sometimes I wonder, you know, so, so for example, you can think about a society where marijuana is legal and easily available, um, like here where I am in Canada, uh, versus a society where it's illegal, like, I don't know, Singapore or something like that, right? So in one society, you have people who don't smoke any marijuana at all. If they do, they you know go to jail, face severe punishments, and that kind of thing. Uh, versus here, nobody cares. And I think it's worth because psychedelics right now is you know 
not super widespread. It's actually, I think, worth thinking a little bit about what is the societal effect of, you know, uh, society-wide psychedelic use. Because we can see, right, so the, the effect of society-wide marijuana use, right, is some people are very happy, they're relaxed, but other people get addicted. And other people, uh, I mean, for many people, it's a performance-degrading drug. So it makes them a bit less motivated, which, you know, across many, many people can, can add up. Psychedelics, I think, is interesting because I don't think it's addictive. I don't think it's performance-degrading in the long term. But it does seem to me like it would create a society in which many, many more people are believing in spiritual things and are sort of more disconnected from the material world and feel a much greater part of the spiritual world, which some religious people would say, that sounds great to me. And we need more of that in a you know more strictly religious way. Some spiritual people would say, that's great. They're just experiencing the truth. But you know, from a perspective of, of a society trying to run and trying to improve itself, it's not necessarily the best thing for the people in it to believe that there's another world out there. There's another, you know, metaphysical realm that they are going to go to or come from or something. I mean, maybe that's important for, or that's okay for a small group of people, but maybe if you rolled that out everywhere, it would actually change society quite a lot in some unexpected direction. So to me, how I view psychedelics is it kind of amplifies what's already there and inside of you, or it helps you see it more clearly. And so I think for some people, it's like a return to connection to kind of nature or a one sense of oneness or something bigger than themselves um, and kind of removing the fog that uh, was blocking that. And so I wouldn't necessarily think that rolling it out to um, a lot more people would result in what it sounds like you're saying is kind of like more detachment from reality, kind of like less groundedness. Um, I think for a lot of people it would actually result in more groundedness. Um, but again, it's like, it's so hard to say what would happen like i guess in this scenario it's kind of like okay it's decriminalized everywhere everyone has full access you can walk down the street and like pick up a gram of shrooms um or ketamine or like i don't know it depends because if we're talking like dmt to everyone that's a very different story from shrooms to everyone or ketamine to everyone i don't know i i i'm more skeptical that national full-scale decriminalization is going to happen anytime soon like even in terms of medicalization it's so it's going to be such a lengthy and difficult process and red tape and it's already getting pushed back again and again and again and that's just for mdma like <laughs> just mdma i think that's that's kind of my my take on it i, I think it's hard to to tell but it's an interesting kind of uh no what the word i'm looking for like thought thought game thought experiment that's the right word <laughs> i've talked to some people about it and they think that it will basically um in the west at least bring back like a rise in religion like more people will become religious will become christian something like that and that they will integrate their sort of the beliefs they grew up with or their family grew up with, with, you know, this new connection, this new sort of spiritual side that they can now viscerally feel. Um, I think there's, I think there's some evidence that's that people many generations ago 
psychologically we're much more maybe too a bit maybe more tuned into those kinds of things like just in terms of how their minds worked and how they you know thought and so i think i think it's 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 possible that psychologically we could do uh we could move in a less atheistic direction in a more spiritual religious direction because i think i think things often start as spiritual and then they quickly become religious right because the spirituality creates an opening for religions to form whether those would be new religions or not is is interesting i know you know historically there have been many psychedelic cults and things like that um so but i could i could imagine because it seems to be getting made it seems to be getting more mainstream now like i could imagine if it continues getting mainstreamed over a longer period of time eventually that could become more uh integrated into just normal religious life or something like that yeah i i do agree with that i like the words you use in terms of integration there's this almost like i think well i think i have like a little bit of a personal bias here because i actually grew up very very christian um and then deconstructed my faith in high school and then discovered psychedelics and kind of had a return to my own spirituality. So I kind of like just followed <laughs> like the whole kind of path you're charting here, but it wasn't necessarily reintegrating the Christian God. It was more of like a, oh, like this is what it actually feels like. You know, this is what everyone at church was pointing to. Um, and then slowly it has kind of been re reintegrating that with like Buddhist ideas that I've explored um like all different types of religion um and spirituality so yeah i mean i i definitely agree like just even based on personal experience yeah you're very right that i think you have that experience and then suddenly all religions seem much more open to you and you can kind of go to all of them and say oh i kind of understand this because you know to, to get back to the religion versus science thing i think science is all about problem solving it's all about like you focus on like a very small part of reality, trying to figure that out. Whereas religion is about like the totality of everything, right? Or spirituality is about the totality of everything, right? You're, you're, you're trying to figure out how everything fits together and how everything is connected. And you kind of see, you know, the big picture. Once people have that experience, you know, I think they're much more able to see, oh, there is some kind of big picture instead of everything is all science-y. Um, so, yeah, I guess the question is, would people develop new religions? Would I see a lot of people kind of picking and choosing from different religions. Um, and the only issue with that is that's hard to form a community around because you all have your own, you know, everyone has their own esoteric, like, interpretations of things. Um, but but, but I, that's, that's kind of what I see happening in the future. I think lots of people like, like yourself uh, are having the same experience. And I imagine 50 years from now, things could look in some ways like a blast from the past. And then, I don't know, maybe people then forget about psychedelics. They just do the religion. Then, you know, maybe it goes in a cycle. Who knows? The idea of new religions is really interesting because I think there is kind of a little bit of blurring in terms of, yeah, everyone's kind of like, there's a little bit of like buffet, right? Like, oh, right now we have access to, the entire history of all religions and spirituality and you can kind of pick and choose like what resonates with you and you know what kind of hits and something that's really interesting is um emerging kind of modalities um also kind of borrow from religions there's this whole thing of like ideal parent protocol um i don't know if you've heard of it it's ipf um it's kind of this idea it's similar to ifs 
but it's this idea of creating like this ideal parent and using that as a like mental model to sort of, um, and I'm not as familiar with this as IFS, so I may be butchering it, but my understanding of it is like, yeah, you create this ideal parent in your figure in your mind. Um, and you feel the kind of like love and attention and everything you needed as a kid, basically to sort of heal those old attachment wounds and traumas that may have occurred as a kid. And people were like, Hmm, sounds a little bit like the Christian God, like an all loving, you know, kind of omnipresent figure that stays with you in your mind and forgives you and is always there and loves you forever. Um, yeah, so there's very interesting parallels in terms of the mental motions people are using um, to, you know, kind of do healing um, and stuff like that. And so there's so much convergence. It's like secular becoming spiritual, spiritual becoming secular. Um, and I do think there will be a lot of, I, there's probably going to be some sort of new path. You know, in, in many ways, there already are. Like if you see so many of the, coaches and kind of gurus out there they're basically creating their own mini religion <laughs> you know if if you think of it as like a loose term like it's it's already happening in many ways yeah well it get it, it brings up the question of what is a cult versus a religion I, I mean actually i guess there's an answer to that which is you can't you're not supposed to leave a cult and they get mad at you if, if you leave but but yeah i i, I think it's I think it's going to be a huge thing and I do see it potentially having um, a lot of benefit to people's lives because I think a lot of people are, they really don't like the kind of like Adam. I mean, they're, they're stuck in a kind of weird place. So they don't like the atomistic culture, but they're not really willing to commit to a broader movement that has mass appeal. Right. I think there's lots of people like that. And so they kind of curate their own thing. I think people sometimes fall into politics maybe as a way of, of, you know, doing that or different kinds of fandoms. Um, I, you know, but I think, yeah, I think it's all sort of fulfilling the same needs and yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if as we continue, we just keep rediscovering like stuff people told us many, many generations ago. Right. Cause it's continuous. I wanted to switch topics a little bit and ask you about social prescribing. You wrote a piece about it, um, and I wrote not too long ago a piece about uh, how loneliness is not a public health problem, in which I argued that even though it's not really a public health problem, it's you know a behavioral or something like that problem. It's a it's a human problem, um, not a disease problem. That things like social prescribing might actually be useful, and so when when we're trying to deal with things like loneliness as an epidemic or a crisis or whatever people want to call it, but just you know, social dislocation, atomization in general, do you think that people need some kind of push from an authority figure? Like, we all want to believe that as free individuals, we all make the best choices, but it does seem like there's many, many lonely people out there who could all choose to get up and go out and meet each other and make friends who just don't. And so do we need some kind of push from a doctor, therapist, something like that to get people into these, you know, new communities that are going to be coming? Yeah, I, I think yes. <laughs> like, I think there's this 
study actually on how isolation actually changes your brain and kind of it changes your perspective and ability to kind of sense what you need. So the more lonely you are, it's like really vicious negative feedback loop. The more the less you think that you need other people and you get more and more isolated. There's less like reaching out and connection. And I think a simple like I've experienced this myself. It's like I'm like, oh my God, I feel so terrible. And then I talk to a friend for 30 minutes. And all of a sudden it creates this new positive feedback loop where I'm wanting to connect to more people and excited to, you know. And yeah, I think the short answer is yes. I think it's so easy to fall into our habits and what feels comfortable and the internet makes it really easy to like stay in contact with people without really staying in contact. And it's so easy to get more isolated than you realize you are. And like a little nudge from a doctor, a therapist, be like, let's go outside. <laughs> and it seems so silly that like I need my doctor to tell me to go touch grass basically, or like hang out with my friends. But sometimes you just need a little nudge and it can create this again like positive feedback loop that grows and compounds when i first wrote that article i had two drafts so the first draft i spent way too much time on and it was like an angry thing like why do people need you know someone to tell them to go outside or meet friends or like join a club like is like i do this don't isn't everybody do this but then i like shelved that i'm like you know what no actually people do because if if i was if if they didn't need it then it wouldn't be a problem that to me gets to a change I've had recently in my thinking on on quite a lot of mental health issues and, and, you know, just about life and people in general is I think the kind of mental health culture or maybe the the implicit like theory of human nature or human well-being in a lot of mental health spaces, particularly new mental health spaces. I think Freud and people like that thought very differently is the whole point of human life is to be fully liberated. The whole point of what you're doing as a person is that you have this like, you know, amazing, awesome person inside of you and it gets kind of, you know, beaten down by life and by trauma and by your environment and, uh, you know, your past and all this stuff. And the goal of psychology, the goal of therapy, the goal of, you know, whatever sort of self-improvement you're doing is to kind of get rid of everything that's standing in the way of you just being the perfect, unique you. My concern with that is, at least in this context, is that maybe people, as they truly are, are in fact mostly not that awesome. And once we get rid of all the sort of stuff that was, quote unquote, keeping people down, right, like their community, their family members who were n nudging them to go do this and this and then getting mad at them. Once we kind of take away all of those things from people, which I think they can subjectively view as impediments. Right. So it could be social norms about family or marriage. Basically, once we get rid of all that sort of stuff, which people, individuals don't like, they become these perfect sort of people and they're kind of really unhappy. Uh, and they they actually start wishing, oh, I wish I had somebody to, you know, force me to go join this club or make friends. Or I wish I had an obligation uh, that I had to go to do. I don't know if you agree or disagree, but it strikes me a lesson that we can learn from this is maybe a lot of the model of human nature that psychologists and people interested in these topics have been using are, are really basic. And, and maybe actually we need a lot more structure. We need in some cases influences that we don't choose or we don't agree with in our lives in order to actually be happy because 
if all we are is a bundle of perfection and choices, then we can choose anything and we are sort of nothing. Getting philosophical here, huh? <laughs> I- I'm actually going to use IFS framework here. Um, there is a concept in the framework of the self where it's like at our core, we know what to do. We are compassionate, courageous, spacious, like there's this higher self in us that knows the way. And I actually do believe that is true. But I also think that there are other parts in, in IFS terms of us that kind of take over sometimes and ha- are taking the wheel and, you know, create these issues and problems where it's like, we need a little nudge, we need a little help. And these are like younger parts of us that have developed behaviors to cope with because of past traumatic behaviors, right? Um, and so I think the thought experiment of, you know, like taking away all the other issues, I think is hard because that's never quite the case, right? You're never going to be able to do that with anyone, <laughs> no matter how much inner work you do, no matter if you reach enlightenment, there's, you're always going to have these sort of parts of yourself that take over and you know, sometimes a nudge or some structure. And I mean, (laughs) ideally we live in a place where, you know, you can walk outside and see your friends and there's a lot of green space and things that kind of nourish your self naturally. But the issue is like, it, it goes all the way to the top. Like there's, even if you're like doing great, there's so many challenges in like everyday life that like, don't come just internally or externally. And so, yeah, I think that the, my like <laughs> short answer to that is kind of both are very, very necessary or like, and both are true. Um, there is this higher self of us that can emerge in certain times, but we also need a lot of help <laughs> because we're not acting from those higher selves at all times and it's hard to access and everyone from our friends to our family to our doctors to our environment play a very big role in determining what part of us shows up so it's almost like the conflict is more internal and that can explain why some things that one part of us might want another part of us might dislike or have a problem with I think using your framework, there's a part of me that wants to be, it's a fully formed self and wants to just be totally sort of free from constraint, internal or external, to be whoever I want to be, do whatever I want to do. And that would be fine if that was the entirety of me. But the problem is that there's other parts of me that want other things. And so maybe there's a part of me that, I don't know, wants safety and security or wants um, connection. And that's intention with the part of me that wants to be just a unique individual self. And so the the conflict is less between the individual and society and more between the individual and different needs that they that they have. I would say it's all of the above. <laughs> There's it's constant conflict internal and external. And I think that's why like structure is can be very helpful. The thing is for for me, when I look at it historically, like the last um 50 to 100, or really 50 sort of years, basically ever since the baby boomers were teens, it seems like the self has had a lot more influence in, you know, it has been much more sort of out of the box in other parts in society. 
the baby boomers, you know, being the biggest generation, having a lot of influence, but also having all these new ideas about how society should be run, it should be very equal, should be very anti-corruption, you know, anti-violence, etc. But it was also very much uh, a society that was really focused on individuals and the self. And that was just not really the case, at least not nearly as strongly before that, although there, of course, had been individualism as a bigger trend for some time. But anyway, the, the point I'm trying to make is it seems to me like a lot of people today are very unhappy and they feel very disconnected. and I think one can attribute a lot of that to the individual, which maybe is the perfect self or the ideal self or something, but the individual self is getting much more, you know, playtime, but that's, uh, I don't know what people in sports use, airtime, playtime, um, is getting much more time, yeah, <laughs> compared to uh, the, the other aspects of the self, which are maybe being suppressed. So, I mean, maybe, maybe maybe there is kind of a suppression of other aspects if the individual ideal self is getting so much attention. So I would I would make a, a distinction there of I think we're using different uh, definitions of self. So the self that I'm talking about is more of like a. It's it's kind of like the soul or the spirit in different yeah if you think of like different um religions and how they uh view it versus the self that it sounds like you're talking about is kind of like this whole thing of like me first atomization kind of like very hyper individualistic culture um so i think that's why we're having a little bit of like a (laughs) yeah talking past each other gotta define your terms you got it's always important self is a very um yeah, it's a very fluid term. Uh, well, let me ask you about uh, one more topic. And that is, there is obviously a lot of data that's being collected on mental health now through, you know, different kinds of apps that people are creating. Like if you have an app that is your therapist, it is collecting the data on everything you say to it. And it's using that data probably to uh, talk to you, but also probably to improve the app. Maybe they sell that data. I'm not sure. It would depend on the company. There's other kinds of data, right? So uh, I think increasingly people are going to try and do things like uh, an app that reminds or that you get a notification. Hey, what's your mood today, right? And you rank your mood and people can see over time like what their moods have been like. And maybe if they get other kinds of data, biometric data, it can inform you. Maybe you're moody because you're hungry or because you didn't exercise, something like that. There's one concern about that, which is data privacy. So uh, there, The Economist had this article about a couple of these, um, I think, online chatbot apps and therapy apps got hacked and people's, you know, like private conversations and things like that were released. And that's not good. But I think that kind of can happen with like any kind of app or any kind of, I mean, it's the internet, right? So um the worst case scenario there I can see is somebody who is in a high profile position and, and it's, uh, you know, it's leaked and people can now see that they've done something bad or they have some illness that makes it difficult for them to do their job. I don't know. Um, but a bigger concern I see with some of these new apps and, uh, and products is it seems like a very good way to actually surveil and control people's behavior. Uh, so, you know, a lot of places are now developing like workplace mental health apps, for instance, where, you know, it tells you like, take, you know, uh, the company will buy the app and install it on everybody's computer. And it will tell you like, oh, 
make sure you take a break or have a glass of water. And if you're having a, you know, a bad day, here's the, the chat bot you can talk to. And if you have a, you know, problem, a mental health problem, right, then there's, there's ways you can do that through the app. So part of me wonders if the, the digitalization of mental health is going to lead inevitably to sort of it being used as a way to kind of, I don't know, control and manage people's behavior. And it, maybe it will come a day when if you have a problem with a coworker, it will be treated as like a mental health issue you have to deal with through your app, right? So, oh, you know, Janice made me mad. She keeps stealing my pencils. Oh, well, it sounds like you need some CBT, like to, you know, deal with your feelings. And uh, that might sound a little far-fetched, but I don't think it's that crazy because I think increasingly we prefer to deal with conflict as like an emotional issue and not as like an actual disagreement. Um, so I'm just wondering, cause you've been paying some attention to, you know, the apps and things that have been created in that space. I mean, what do you see as major concerns around privacy or surveillance or, um, or those things actually affecting, you know, uh, how companies can sort of shape people's behavior? So I would say actually that it is pretty concerning. I, I do have a lot of concerns around data privacy and leaking because it is such sensitive data, like compared to other apps, if you're logging, like, I don't know, there's different apps with different sensitivity types of data. Um, and there was an instance, you know, where a hacker got into like a mental health database and then blackmailed the students with their sensitive health data because, you know, you're talking about things with your therapist that you don't want other people to know. And so it's actually really concerning if companies are leaking conversations. That's one area that's like definitely a red flag. The other area is like selling data, right? And like that brings in the whole incentives thing of like, are these companies just fronts in order to kind of get people's data and then sell it to third parties? Um, so yeah, that's kind of like a, those are definitely concerns. I've also seen in my research issues with, uh, especially around workplace um, mental health and apps, because it was like, oh, the manager can see anonymized data and their team isn't that big. So they can tell who's saying what. And it's like, okay, that's not okay. <laughs> and um, it actually, someone found a lawsuit because they were like, I got fired because of information that I was doing through, I think it was, I don't want to misspeak, but I think it was Talkspace um, or something like that. And so, yeah, then you have that concern too. Um, and then regarding surveilling behavior and that stuff, this is something I was thinking about around Apple too, because it's like, okay, <laughs> you know how they're doing their whole mental health uh push with um i think it was a mood tracker journaling and other stuff pushing it out to like millions of iphones around the world there's concerns around like okay we're telling the biggest the richest company in the world what like we're doing every day and our moods and tying those behaviors together and they're developing their own ais and stuff and they effectively have a huge amount of associations and stuff to work with and i'm not saying that apple's going to do anything 
with it. Like they're, they have had a track record of being like a pretty good company and um, like actually good, like better privacy standards than most tech uh, organizations. But the issue is like, what happens if a hacker gets through or what happens if it falls into the wrong hands? And there is a little bit of fear I think people have around that happening, especially, you know, when as technology evolves and like deep fakes and I don't know, all of these sorts of like emotional warfare basically um, are starting to become more prevalent. So lots of concerns (laughs) in short. Yeah, that, that is a lot. The, the other thing that I could see being not great is, and I'm not sure if this is that different than other kinds of data, but what often happens with when people get these huge big data sets is they just, they use them to make correlational arguments that are, you know, they're not super like well-founded causally. And so you can kind of end up justifying almost any kind of activity or any kind of purchase or something based on data, right? So if Apple Again, they're they're a bad example because they have a very good track record. But let's suppose they get a new CEO and he changes his mind um, about the privacy stuff. And, you know, they say, oh, actually, people who use the, the new iPhone, you know, 15 or whatever uh, are 20 percent, you know, more like feeling better in their mental health app or something, you know, than people use the last one. Now, that's that seems like pretty, you know, obviously dumb, but it. To me, as more and more of all this data is going to be collected, it will people in positions of power will will use it to either try and sell products or to try and basically influence people, right? So um, people in their companies, right? Like they might say, "Oh, look, we can show that the people who are um, doing, you know, working in this way and working this many hours and not causing these problems, like look how you know happy they are compared to oh, here's you know this person who's not doing any work and look, he's very unhappy." And I mean. It, it's it's stupid, but I mean, a lot of people will will buy that kind of thing. And so I I personally, I love data, but I think it's usually bad when there's more of it uh, out there because people mostly use it in stupid kind of ways. I mean, it's, again, a lot of it is sort of smoke and mirrors and people really like the idea of things sounding scientific and um, and that kind of thing. So that that's also a worry of mine is just the more data we have about any topic, like the dumber, the the discourse and the ideas around it like often ends up being. Yeah, I think a term I saw recently was science washing around like wellness products and stuff. And I could see, I mean, it's already happening and <laughs> when we're not collecting a bunch of mental health data. So yeah, I think that's definitely a, a big concern too. Final question is, are there any trends in mental health, you know, tech and technology that you haven't written about yet, you haven't talked about yet, but that you sort of see as being on the horizon? I mean, what what do you see as the next big thing? Next big thing is hard because I feel like there's so many. Um, personally, as a bias, I, I, I'm really interested in somatic work and breath work and those sort of modalities. Um, I'm also very interested in the rise of neurofeedback devices, um, which I haven't explored a ton and I need to do more research on. But for example, I don't know if you've heard of Journey. It's J H 
O-U-R-N-E-Y. Um, but they're basically building a helmet to um, help people achieve jhanas faster. And jhanas are this state in meditation, which uh, is, they put it like um, non-pharmacological MDMA. <laughs> it's like a state of bliss and extreme, I don't know if happiness is the right word, but bliss, yeah. Um, so that's really interesting, just the rise of, I think, the movement's kind of called connected mindfulness um, of, yeah, apps and tech that help us get to enlightenment faster <laughs> is is the sort of way, like cheeky way to kind of put it. Um, yeah, so I think that's very interesting. That's, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, okay, well, where, where can people uh, find your work? It's headlines. On Substack, the URL is headlineshq.substack.com. Um, I also tweet a lot. I'm on Twitter at Melody Song, M E L O D A Y Song. Um, and yeah, great. Uh, well, Mel, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Um, had a great time talking to you, and uh, yeah, have a great day. Thanks for having me, Jenna.